This past month has seen a reversal in rates and relief for the market. But why? Here's what matters. Live from a makeshift lounge in Miami, Florida, I'm Lauren Goodwin, and this is Market Matters from New York Life Investments. In this podcast, we bring you the best insights from across the New York Life Investments platform because we believe that by sharing perspectives and engaging with you, our listeners, we can all become better investors. Welcome, everyone. It's the week of December 11th, 2023, and I'm here with Julia Herman, who tells me it's gotten cold in New York, and so we are going to be cozying up for the holidays. In times like this, a Yule log, whether in your fireplace or on one of those recorded TV loops, comes in handy to make everyone warm and to keep morale up. And as luck would have it, in the past month, the market has gotten its hands on a Yuletide gift of its own, a fall in yields, sparking rallies in U.S. equities and bond prices, and certainly making investors warm and keeping morale up. Today, Julie and I are going to share our thoughts on why this is happening and what we expect for the next few months, especially in light of the economic scenarios we launched with our 2024 outlook last week. So let's get to it. Julia, let us know what's been happening before we get started with the why. The arc of this year has been thus. We had some solid yield volatility in the first quarter, then a steady rise in yields with the 10-year going from around 3.5% in April to a peak of just under 5% in mid-October. At that point, we were talking about the yield curve undergoing what's called a bear steepener, where longer-term yields are rising faster than the policy rate. And if that little ditty isn't enough context to know what a bear steepener is, don't worry, we've got you covered. We did a podcast explaining the term just a few weeks ago, and even though yields are no longer moving in a bear steepener pattern, meaning they're not moving up on the back end in the same they were when we made that podcast, it's a really good refresher on what the yield curve movements mean and what they signal for markets. But since then, we've seen a steep drop in the 10-year to about 4.1%. And concurrently, the S&P 500 index has rallied over 7% since the peak in the 10-year and the U.S. aggregate bond index just wrapped its best month since 1981. Yields moving from about 5% to about 4.1% is a huge move. And we spend a fair amount of our time figuring out what is driving certain market movements like these. And in this case, though, it's been pretty clear. Yields have been falling in our view because, one, liquidity is improving, and two, investors are feeling confident that the Fed is done hiking. And frankly, that's a view that we share. Let me just double click there. Why is liquidity improving when the Fed is on pause right now? It is not cutting interest rates and it is still on a liquidity draining quantitative tightening program. It would be really easy to go down a nerdy policy wonk rabbit hole on that question, which, by the way, is a great question. But I'll give you the high level. Banks and other financial institutions still have plenty of excess reserves. Many are choosing to hold these reserves in what are called Federal Reserve Reverse Repurchase Agreements, or RRP. But as interest rates rise, which, to my point, would all else equal signify draining liquidity. That's right. These institutions, in that case, might shift funds from RRP and instead to the Treasury market, effectively pumping liquidity into the real economy. 
Okay, that's a really good reminder that just like how market interest rates, like the 10-year, can have a bit of a mind of their own beyond just the policy rate that the Fed is setting, the liquidity situation is not entirely and exclusively in the control of monetary policymakers. They have a huge amount of influence, but a lot depends on the market and the corporate reaction to those policy movements. I also want to come back to the second reason why we think market interest rates have been declining in the past month, which is the expectation that the Fed is finally done hiking after almost two years of a hiking cycle. Lauren, can you remind our audience how we quantify the idea that investors are expecting that the Fed's next move will be downward, a cut? Yeah, absolutely. So we look at tools like Bloomberg's World Interest Rate Probability Function, which from the Fed Fund's futures curve aggregates different probabilities to derive a effectively implied policy path of interest rates going forward. So currently using a tool like that, investors are assigning a 100 percent chance of a 20 basis point interest rate cut from the Fed in May of next year and five rate cuts in total throughout the year as a whole, which would bring the policy rate down to an upper bound of closer to 4%. This is a meaningful departure from when yields were peaking in October. At that point, the market expected just two interest rate cuts of 25 basis points next year. Now, one thing I will mention as a quick aside here, investors like ourselves and even the financial media are often quoting these numbers as the market expects or investors are assigning a chance of, you know, whatever number of rate cuts or hikes the way that, frankly, I just did. But actually, the probabilities that we have in this tool are an accumulation of everyone's best guess in the market. So saying that the market is pricing in five rate cuts next year the way I just did, it may actually be that half of market participants think we'll have zero rate cuts and the other half think we'll have 10. And so saying that there are five rate cuts priced doesn't mean that five is the magic number, but it does mean that relative to the two cuts that were priced in just a few weeks ago, the market is seeing some sort of meaningful change. And if it's expecting more rate cuts, then that may be because it's expecting inflation to slow a lot or otherwise economic growth to slow a lot. And that's what we try to figure out. The key point in all of this is that interest rate expectations are fluid and subject to rapid change. But Lauren, to your point, I will say that the trend toward expecting no further hikes this year, that the Fed is done with its hiking cycle, that looks to be pretty cemented. That's a trend that's firmed up in the last few months. There's also been a steady trend of expecting more and more interest rate cuts next year. So let's then transition our conversation towards what we expect for the next few months and into the new year. As we've discussed, we associate the possibility of extensive interest rate easing next year with the likelihood of a recession when the economy would need more policy support or rate cuts. However, we are continuing to reiterate our view that the Fed cannot credibly cut interest rates just yet. Inflation, specifically core inflation, is still too high and the labor market is still too hot, in our view, to justify policy support. So I'd say one of our non-consensus views is that we think the Fed will cut later than investors currently expect on aggregate, which means that the front end of the Treasury curve, we would expect that to come down later than currently expected. 
And regardless of that timing, this doesn't mean that we expect market determined interest rates from treasuries to corporate bonds to track the policy rate trend exactly. Let's think to the back end of the curve, those longer dated treasuries. There, for example, we expect there may be a floor on the 10-year treasury yield between, let's say, 35 or 3.75%, even in a recession scenario where you might expect it to move otherwise lower. Why do you say that, Lauren? Well, the biggest driver of this perspective are the structural shift in supply and demand working out in the long end of the treasury curve. And those put some upward pressure on yield, in our view. This includes not just that there's been a pretty low demand in recent treasury auctions, which can pressure yields upward, but also bigger investment themes like digital infrastructure and energy independence, where we see both the government and the private sector spending money. Right. And with more spending comes more financing needs and more question marks about overall debt quality and debt sustainability. And that's not just for sovereign governments that we'd see in the treasury curve, but also municipalities, local governments, and corporations. Right. And since we're pretty convinced that these questions about supply and demand could skew yields moderately higher than in a previous cycle, we think that for U.S. Treasury yield to move closer to 3%, we'd probably need to see a serious slowdown in economic growth beyond the mild recession that we expect. Just one more thing here, Lauren. When we're talking about the 10-year Treasury yield, we are talking in nominal terms or including the inflation rate. But given that we all expect inflation to come down next year, although the pace and extent of that are certainly up for debate, does that change anything when we talk in inflation-adjusted or real terms? Wow, it's such an important point. And we've gotten a lot of questions and suggestions about this, that the Fed may be able to cut rates sooner just because inflation is falling. Because if the policy rate and inflation come down, then the aggregate result would leave real or inflation-adjusted rates at the same level. And that's both economically and mathematically entirely true. But the Fed has been very clear that they're concerned about another factor, which is that if they cut rates too quickly, even if that keeps real rates at the same level, or even if they give guidance that it's too, that is too dovish for the market, that may result in a loosening of financial conditions and therefore result in a market run-up or an economic reheating, which is exactly what they're trying to avoid. That brings us to our portfolio pause, a segment of the program where we share an investment idea. And back in September, we shared research which suggested that adding to bond exposure two to three months before the Fed officially pauses has historically been the best timing. And as we suggested, this strategy has proven spot on with the aggregate bond index wrapping its best month since 1981. We've discussed our call to add duration, especially now that we expect an end to the Fed hiking cycle. But Julia, how else could we think about fixed income exposure? Great question. Well, adding duration usually implies doing so in investment grade bonds, usually treasuries or agency bonds, potentially even munis, but also investment grade corporate bonds. But for investors seeking higher risk, we still think that high-yield corporate bonds do offer attractive opportunities. The returns of these high-yield corporate bonds are often compared to equity market returns within a bond portfolio. In that sense, performance-wise, high-yield has fallen short of the S&P 500 index in the past month. But when we adjust these returns for risk using what's called a sharp ratio, high-yield has been pulling ahead of equity. Now, there are still certainly some credit quality concerns there, especially as economic growth slows. 
There's also what we would refer to as a maturity wall of bonds coming due in the next few years. So here, I really want to flag security selection and careful credit analysis in our view are so important, especially the further investors venture down the credit quality ladder. Coming up next, we will leave you with our ode to the markets before we sign off for the holidays. And let me tell you, you do not want to miss this episode next week. But that's it for today. We'll be back next week for more Market Matters. In the meantime, please remember to give us a like, follow or review wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have a question or topic of interest, reach out to us on LinkedIn. You can also follow our views at NewYorkLifeInvestments.com and click the Insights tab. Until then, I'm Lauren Goodwin here with Julia Herman, and we will see you next time. Our podcast is produced by Will Tyus, and our music was composed by the fabulous Zach Young. I will now read our disclosures from compliance. The S&P 500 index measures the performance of 500 U.S. listed large cap equities. The U.S. aggregate bond index measures the performance of investment grade U.S. Treasury agency and corporate bonds. Past performance is no guarantee of future results, which will vary. All investments are subject to market risk and will fluctuate in value. This material represents an assessment of the market environment as at a specific date, is subject to change, and is not intended to be a forecast of future events or a guarantee of future results. This information should not be relied upon by the reader as research or investment advice regarding the funds or any issuer or security in particular. The strategies discussed are strictly for illustrative and educational purposes and are not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. There is no guarantee that any strategies discussed will be effective. This material contains general information only and does not take into account an individual's financial circumstances. This information should not be relied upon as a primary basis for an investment decision. Rather, an assessment should be made as to whether the information is appropriate in individual circumstances and consideration should be given to talking to a financial advisor before making an investment decision. New York Life Investments is both the service mark and the common trade name of certain investment advisors affiliated with the New York Life Insurance Company. Securities are distributed by Nylife Distributors, LLC, 30 Hudson Street, Jersey City, New Jersey, 07302, a wholly owned subsidiary of New York Life Insurance Company. Nylife Distributors, LLC is a member of FINRA SIPC.